I must say, you know, one of the joys for Nalini and me has been just to be with you as a church, as a community. You know, when you're invited to speak, you can go to different places, and there is something about you that is very clear that the Spirit of God is here. I see. And that is the witness of the New Testament church. It wasn't just one or two people. It wasn't just Peter, Paul, or people. It was the gathered community. And what they did that became so attractive. And that's my dream. That not just you leaders, but every single person who comes to this church will be so full of the Spirit that that'll become the most attractive thing. That people will say, we want to go there because we want what they've got. So, so I want to thank you for this, for this time and Pastor Q for inviting me to come. And I'm humbled by your passion and your hunger for God. And also, you know, even in the way you served one another and the way you served us. I mean, we came to our hotel room and there was this huge basket of stuff. And I was thinking, whoa. You know, what's this? This is like we're being treated like royalty here. <laughs> See? So things like that you do, you do very well. See? Uh, and I just want to thank you for that. Uh, this evening, as I look at the text, the text is the, the passage that Pastor Q read early. If you drink of the water that I give you, out of you will spring up rivers of living water. I don't think we grasp the power and the release of that promise. We think when we drink, it satisfies my hunger. It fills my need, covers my weakness. This is an amazing promise. And I want to take three fairly large texts of Scripture and go through the way that the Spirit works. This is the program of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This is, this is the process with which the Spirit seems to move in these three different passages that I see. So I, I want to offer that as an encouragement and at the end when we have a ministry time, we can come with confidence, not just with a sense of lack, but we can come with a confidence saying, my Father, my Savior is inviting me to drink, and I'm going to drink tonight. That's what you know, I want us to get to. And then, because you are the leaders, the ministry leaders, Tomorrow at the church service, you must be the people laying hands on the community or every opportunity you get, you will lay hands and they will receive. So that the anointing is not just on pastors, uh, but it is on the leaders and from the leaders to the people, from the church to the world. Let's see. The anointing constantly moves. And that's my dream for you. So 
when we invoke the name of the Trinity, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, sometimes we say this without uh, realizing the amazing power and magnitude of who this God is. But over a period of time, the church has almost become guilty of neglecting the Holy Spirit to the point, I don't know who said this, but said that the church is almost saying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. We are missing the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I have a friend of mine who is a you know, pretty famous Bible teacher. And uh, he, in one of his messages here, he said, I'm amazed at how much the American church can do without the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so, uh, how easy it is for us to train, to excel, uh, to be leaders, to be so busy, to be so active, and have all these hallmarks of success for a church without the Spirit. See? But it is the Spirit who, who creates that river of life. See? And that's the river. You know, I love the songs that we sang you know, today about deepening the wells and getting into the, the deep water. And I think you're in deep water. <laughs> yeah. So. When Jesus said, it is necessary for me to go away, and then I will send you a helper. I love the word for the Holy Spirit as the helper. He's there to help. In all of life, not just for my personal things, but he's there to help move the kingdom of God. So as we look at this, I look at my own spiritual journey, even my ministry career. Uh, as I shared this morning, I went to a very strong evangelical seminary. I'm an academic at heart, and I study hard, and uh, I attended to the word. Study of the word was very, very important. And... Uh, but somewhere in the process, in my own, you know, a good part of my ministerial career even, I neglected how the Spirit moves the Word from the Word to an experience, from an experience to a revelation, and from a revelation to a testimony. There is a process that happens. The text becomes something that becomes an experience. The word becomes flesh, see? and that revelation of the word becoming flesh is more than what the text says. See? It's when the spirit comes and makes it come alive, and it is more than all my thinking, all my capacity. See? I mean, just imagine, I've been a preacher for 42 years, preaching every Sunday. And uh, in America, it's easy because I preach once a week. In India, you would preach about three, four times a week, sometimes six times a week. And you don't get much of a time to prepare. You'll be somewhere and they'll say, Pastor, speak. <laughs> you have no clue what the situation is, and you'll be asked to speak. So you've, 
And I have just found that the Holy Spirit is the helper has been there with me these 42 years. I don't repeat sermons. God has been faithful. There's many a time, even now, even recently, now I'll have a passage, I feel this is what God wants me to speak to, so I'll speak about, and I'm struggling with it. It doesn't make sense. I've written out a sermon. It's nicely structured, everything, but doesn't have life. See? Before I can deliver it, I know it as a preacher. And uh, then you go to sleep, and suddenly at night, it breaks open. In a, it, it's not like I have a dream or a vision, but suddenly the word comes alive. And I know this is not something with all my study and my research and everything I could have come up with. Where the word, the text, becomes an experience an experience that becomes a revelation that is more than everything that my capacity, my training, my experience can produce. It becomes a revelation. And, and the beauty of it is, sometimes on a Sunday morning, it still hasn't cooked. <laughs> so I'm coming to the church and I'm still feeling uneasy. I mean, anybody who's a preacher knows that. And I'm feeling I come to church. And then the Lord says, I don't want you to preach. Trust me. And just, uh, when was it? I just talked on John chapter 4, the passage I'm going to look at on Sunday. I came to church and all I had was the text. Not a single sentence of notes. Because God was, God has to prepare me in order for that experience to become real in me, to trust the Spirit to break open the Word so that it becomes a revelation. And unless God works in me, how will it happen with the people? See? So the work of the Spirit often includes the prophet and the people who are receiving the Word. And very often, the prophet has to change. So this process of this, the way of the spirit is always inclusive of the whole community. It's not like the prophet has a special revelation and the people are waiting just to receive it. It's a process that includes everybody. You know. This is you know, what I see. And... Uh, so beyond all this preparation, study of the word, and as, as I say, you know, the more I sense the spirit move in me and bring me to a point of revelation, the more it drives me to my knees, both in prayer and in study. I read at least four books a week, a uh, month, not a week. I wish I could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm reading and I'm reading and I have been reading all these years for 42 years. Why? Because the Spirit prompts me, humbles me in search after the magnitude of God, the goodness of God, the greatness of God. And so the more you're moved in the Spirit, the Spirit will teach you to seek and learn 
And part of the role of the prophet is to learn that. And for me, it is sort of similar to, you know, little children, when they're beginning to speak a language, they're babbling first. They're struggling with words. And you learn to babble with them. <laughs> and then after a while, sentences come, but there is no grammar. Okay? But at age four, developmentally, what happens is suddenly it shifts and the grammar appears at age four. So that the human brain has the innate capacity to create grammar for a child at about age four. So the child starts speaking fluently. The child doesn't know what's a verb or an adverb or an adjective, but the grammar comes. It doesn't matter whether you're speaking Portuguese or Chinese or Tamil or English, the grammar comes. Or a child can speak three different languages with different grammars simultaneously. It's this amazing capacity that God has built into us. And just like it emerges for language, where we have to learn to babble, practice, and suddenly it breaks open, so also in the practice of prophecy, I believe, initially, we will babble. <laughs> we will have to learn. And then, when the Spirit begins to see you faithfully, you know, he breaks open, and suddenly you move in a deeper way. And you will, you know, I see this in different people. I see this in myself. So there is this innate capacity God has built into us for the Spirit to teach us His language, not just our language. See? And uh, so, so much so that even when you don't understand the gift of tongues, you're communicating. You're speaking in the spirit. Or when you don't know how to pray with sighs and groans too deep for words, what does the spirit do? The spirit is interpreting with our spirit. So there is a different level of communication see, that is beyond reason or training or practice that emerges because the spirit is at work in us. So if you turn with me to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, you have the story, uh, I'll read from verse 7, John 4 from verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Uh, Jesus answered, if you know the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give in him will never th be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come again and draw this water. You know the story. Okay. So here is this encounter of Jesus 
Now, there are all these barriers. She's a woman, she's a Samaritan, there is this, you know, this whole religious division between the two, their understandings of where God is present in Mount Gerizim or whether it is in Jerusalem. All these things are there, and that's the things that rise to the surface. And gee, what is Jesus promising her? He says, if you drink of the water that I give you, you will never thirst. That's personal. But he's also telling her, out of you will spring a river of living water. So, and he's asking her, if only you knew who it is that is offering you this. If only you knew that. I think, you know, for the Samaritan woman, she didn't know. But I think to a large extent, sometimes even as believers, even as people filled with the Spirit, we do not realize the offer Jesus is making. If only you knew, you know, what I'm offering you. And she says, all she can think of is, I want to drink this water so that I don't have to come to this well again. And too often in our own weaknesses, in our own human struggles and our frailties, all we want is a drink of water so that we don't have to come back there again. Come back to that place of weakness. Come back to that place of need. But what Jesus is offering is far more than meeting the need or the lack or the deficiency in us. He's saying, I've got much, much more to give you than what you're asking for. And this is one of the things we've got to realize. Our God is not a God who gives us just what we ask. He knows he can give far more. And that's the generosity, the goodness of God. Full measure, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. So as you look at this, so he goes on into a conversation with her. And in that conversation, he said, who's your husband? So, his, so the conversation very quickly has moved from water to theology to who's your husband. Okay. And uh, then she says, you know, tells her story and says, this is my, so there is the revelation, this is the fifth person. And then suddenly she realizes, you know, this is the Messiah. So you move from sort of her understanding of scripture or text where God is present in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem, all this conflicts and all this passing of all that, and suddenly her experience becomes a personal experience. She's confronted with the fact that she's before God and her life stands open, and only God could have that revelation. That revelation is not only about herself. That revelation about herself leads to a greater revelation about God. So every revelation where we confront God and we are confronted with our own self or our own weakness or our own sinfulness must also lead us, revelation must lead us to a greater revelation of who God is. And God's greatness, God's goodness. And so what does she do because of that? She goes and tells the, the whole town. 
I have met this person and the whole town comes to see her. So the prophetic element in this is how this woman within just a short while becomes a river of living water. You see the progression very rapidly. She's at a point of need. She has an experience of God, confronted with herself. Then she's confronted with the greatness of God. And what does that lead? She goes to the Samaritan village and tells everybody about Jesus. And what do they do? You see? They all come. They listen to this Jesus. And then at the end of the story, it says, they tell her, we believe not because you told us, but because we have met him. See how you know, the spirit moves from a place of lack to a place where you become a river of living water. And I think too long what I have done is I have stayed in the place saying, Lord, give me to drink. Lord, give me to drink. Lord, give me to drink. And every time he gives me to drink, I haven't moved beyond that. And he's calling us to, you know, not just drink, but allow that spirit to become a river of living water. And the Samaritan village believes. The Samaritan village believes. It's not just one person who's being saved. Now, because of that one person, the whole village, there is a movement there. A church is planted there see, because of this, this encounter. So it, it is important to, to listen uh, in our own lives beyond the text. It is important to listen to God speak to us. And uh, as we listen to God speak to us, he can use us even in the most difficult circumstances to become a river of life. I'll give you two stories, uh, both very similar, both young women. One had, was diagnosed, of, both diagnosed of cancer, very major forms of cancer. The first one, she was in surgery, and the family was all sort of in the waiting area, but there were about five of us pastors meeting together in one room, and we were praying. And as the pastors were praying, everybody was pronouncing, saying, God has healed her. She's going to be fine. And I'm praying there, and I sense, you know, she'll survive the surgery, but she's not going to live. Now, imagine you have something that comes to you like that. What do you do? Okay. Now, I was foolish enough to share it with the pastors. <laughs> I mean, it was the worst thing I could have done. Okay. Then the prayer is all, you know, she comes out of surgery, all that. You know, she's uh, in a bed in her home, and everybody's gone, and I'm going to visit her daily, regularly, not daily, on a weekly basis. She was, you know, also the sort of the fiancé of one of the pastors that I knew. So as I go visit with her, I'm talking to her, praying with her, and I know this revelation 
that she's not going to live. That's what I heard. But I'm continuing to pray for her. I pray for her life. I'm not giving up. I'm still praying for her. And one day I asked her, I said, if God gave you anything you wanted, what would you like to do? And she said, I'd like to get married. I mean, she's in, in pretty bad state in a, in, in a bed. So I said, okay, I'm going to tell your fiancé about it. <laughs> and she said, no, no I, no, I don't want you to. I said, I didn't promise you I wouldn't tell him. So I went and told him. And I said, this is what she would like. And guess what? Next week they got married. And it was a happy, beautiful time. It was a time of life for her, even in the midst of this impending death. I wish, you know, I could have raised her back to life or something like that. But this is what God used me for at that time, to bring some sense of life into a dire situation. Another very similar story, there was another young woman in our church. She was, she had, major spinal cancer in her spinal cord. And uh, so two days before she was to go in for surgery, the neurosurgeons, everybody, had, it was right from the base of her brain right through to the bottom. And there at the bottom, it was like an onion, the cancer. And so they had said, we are going to operate. There's probably about 99% chance you'll be completely paralyzed uh, and not only that, you might lose speech, you might lose all kinds of things, you may be incontinent. Just about everything could go wrong with that because they said, we've never done anything like this. So the whole family is down, she's down, everything. Uh, it's about 9 o'clock at night. I go there into the house. And uh, I said, you know, Elizabeth, what would you like? What would you want from God? And she said, I'd love to get married. I wish I was alive to get married. I said, get up and start planning your wedding. In the two days you've got before surgery, plan your wedding. Did I know that was what? It's almost like I blurted it out. <laughs> and then I said, what on earth have I done? <laughs> this girl is going into surgery, major surgery in two days' time. And it's almost, it came upon me. And I said, get up and plan your wedding. And her whole demeanor changed, okay? And she got excited and started to plan her wedding two days before the surgery. She goes into surgery, comes out successfully with all her faculties intact, okay? And she not only does that, at her wedding, she walked up for her wedding. Then at my daughter's wedding, she danced. And then she gave birth to a child, which was another great miracle. Five years later, she died. Okay. But do I see that as something I failed as a, you know, somebody listening to God? No. I believe God, you know, sometimes as you begin in this whole ministry, sometimes you don't even know what you're doing. You see? But he, he makes you a river of life in the midst of death. In a dying world, you become that source of life. And these are you know, stories that I tell you of how somebody who's beginning as a prophet, God was teaching me. I didn't even recognize it. But he says, 
when you begin, to, when God begins to touch you and change you, he will use you in, in a variety of ways and to bring life into people. Then the second one I want to look at is uh, Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, you have the story of the conversion of Saul. Now again, he's not, he's not a Gentile, he's of the people of God, but he's so seeped in the word, such a scholar of the word, tutored under Gamaliel, a Pharisee, and so zealous for God that he's completely opposed to the Christians. So there is a way in which his understanding of the word hasn't yet become an experience and a revelation. And then what happens? Then you see, he has this Damascus Road experience. And after the Damascus Road experience, he's blind. He's not eating or drinking. He's there for three days, shut up in a room, and then... God speaks to Ananias, a prophet. Do you think Ananias is you know, ready and willing to do what God wants him to do? No. You see? What's the, the story is very clear. He's saying, Lord, this is the one who wants to kill all of us, and you're sending me to him. And God tells Ananias clearly. You know, he says that um, Ananias, he said, and Ananias said, here I am, Lord, in verse 10. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Behold, he's praying. You see the way God is giving very specific address, details for Ananias? And what is Ananias? He's an unwilling prophet. It's not because the prophet is ready and spiritual and in prayer and waiting that he gets such specific direct revelation. God wants to do something. He will do it to you, through you, even when you're not ready. That's the magnitude of God's work in us. He does more than we are ready for. So he gives him very clear directions so that Ananias goes to Saul. See? And God tells him, you will lay hands on him and no, the spirit will come upon him. I've prepared him to be a servant. Learning in the prophetic ministry sometimes, we may not have such a clear address. I remember this woman, the, she was a student in the seminary with me. Uh, very timid, very quiet, one of the poorest students, barely made it through seminary, but she had a heart for mission and for God. She joined a mission association and they sent her to a remote village. Nothing, they just told her, you go to that village and start work in that town. So she arrives in this town, there is a house that they've given her. She comes there. Knows nothing, nobody. It's a different language, a different people. So she comes, shuts herself in her house, starts to pray. Petrified, completely afraid. Prays for two days, three days, just goes out to get food, comes, locks the door and prays. Prays for two weeks. 
And after two weeks, she has enough courage and strength to say, okay, I'm going to go and follow God's Spirit. So she goes out to the bus station, and a bus comes, she gets in, and the fellow says, where do you want to go? Which stop? And she says, right to the end. So she buys a ticket, gets off the bus there. She has no idea where she's going. Gets off the bus, another bus comes, she gets in. Does the same. Gets off at the end of that bus. Then the third bus comes, she gets into it, and as she's going, the Lord suddenly prompts her, say, she sees a village and says, this is the village. So she stops in the middle of nowhere, has no idea where she is, gets off, and walks through the village. As she's walking through the village, she, has, she doesn't know what to do. She's too scared. Everybody's watching this woman walking through the village. So she walks right through the village to the end, and at the end of the village, there is a a hut, two or three huts there, and she goes to those huts. And as she comes there, there are some women, you know, an old woman, her daughter, grandchildren, all come running to her, welcome her, invite her into the house, etc. And she realizes they're so happy to receive her because these are the temple prostitutes of that village. Nobody goes to those houses except to use them. And so when she goes there, she shares the gospel, doesn't have a New Testament, nothing to give them. All she has is a songbook, and she teaches them two songs in that language for them. And none of them are educated. There's only one boy who's got about fifth or sixth grade education. She comes back home. The mission agency has sent her a letter saying, we are posting you out, you're going to a different place. And she's gone. So she has to go to a different place. So when I arrived there, it was a good six months later. And she said, this is what happened. I still have a heart for that place. I said, come, let's go. So we both went. We both went to this village. And you can imagine, in in a village where this house is known as the temple prostitutes, and a guy is walking there, it's not the best way to go through a village. (laughs) But I walk with her, we go to that house, we go into that house, and that family is delighted to see us. And And they said, sit down, sit down. And they pull out the songbook, and they sing from one song to another song to another song, none of the songs that she taught her. See? This little boy who was the only educated person could read from that songbook. He had two pieces of stone, which he used like a clicker to create a rhythm and song. And they created their own tunes. They learned all the songs. And through that songbook, the whole family was converted. Who, who can do that? You know, you think of somebody who's saying, I don't have it. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. And she's in prayer. And God takes her and makes her a river of living water to a people that nobody knows except their prayer went up to God. And you see this again and again in Scripture, and the same thing happens. What happened with Ananias and Saul? What happens? Ananias comes, lays hands on Saul, and what's the? And he says, "Receive the Spirit." The Spirit comes upon Saul. And what happens? Scales fall from his eyes. For me, that is, you know, 
uh, emblematic of the fact that here is somebody who couldn't see, the, couldn't see Jesus in the word of God, and the spirit comes and makes him see Jesus afresh. See? And what does Paul do? He immediately goes and he's talking in all the synagogues about Jesus Christ. See? The, the word which he didn't understand fully, couldn't recognize the Messiah, becomes an experience in the encounter with Jesus as an anointing of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Scales fall from his eyes, uh, and that, ex that revelation makes him a testimony, makes him a river of life. Then the next chapter, Acts chapter 10. Uh, you see again here, a similar pattern that emerges. Uh, the same process is repeated in Cornelius. Um, and you, you, know, you, you wonder why, just now in chapter 9 you had this revelation, in chapter 10 it's almost a repeat in a different way. In chapter 10, Cornelius is praying again, Somebody who's not part of the kingdom. Somebody who doesn't have access to the things of God like everybody else. And he's praying and God appears to him in a dream. And sends an angel, speaks to him. And at the same time, you have Peter. Peter is the prophet. Peter is the apostle. But Peter is not ready. See? The the. The movement, Peter, is still stuck in the Old Testament text. He has encountered Jesus, but still the revelation hasn't come for him about all peoples being part of the kingdom of God. And then Peter has this vision. And again, as you see, see the prophetic word in this case comes to Cornelius before it comes to Peter. It's, he's not even you know, somebody of the people of God. And the word comes very clearly to, to Cornelius, so specific. The address is crystal clear. Send to Joppa, to this house, by the sea, and ask for Simon. And, and how, when God wants to speak and move, all he does is he finds somebody who's crying out to him and moves through that person. And he sends, brings the men back. Peter comes after his own vision of all the unclean animals, everything. And he comes, and again, uh, I mean, if you read Peter's sermon, the poorest evangelistic sermon you can think of, he begins by saying, you know we are not supposed to associate with you. I mean, what an entry. <laughs> okay. Here is a man of God who's searching for God, and he says, you know, we're not supposed to do this, but God showed me. And, and he begins to talk about it. So I was in Caesarea, and th this place where this whole event happened, and I'm there standing there, and suddenly I have an experience of the Holy Spirit, a revelation that breaks through to me about this passage. This was one of Herod's summer palaces. I mean, this is a huge, beautiful place. And this is where Herod had his saltwater pools and his freshwater pools. This is where the infinity pool was first there for Herod's palace. Okay? And in this 
palace, and in this place, this guy was the centurion. So it's like somebody, it's like Peter being sent to Washington, D.C., and the Secretary of Defense is the one to whom he has to share the gospel. Okay. And Cornelius says, not only is he being somebody who has been hungry for God, and he encounters God through this message of, while Peter is still speaking, the Spirit of God comes. The Spirit of God comes, and what happens? It's Cornelius, he has gathered his family and his friends. Now you're talking, Cornelius' friends are not the ordinary people in Caesarea. You're talking some of the key people in Herod's place. Because he's a big shot, he's a centurion there. And so all the God is suddenly moving in the highest circles with Cornelius. And through somebody who is Peter, again, not exactly ready to go, God changes the understanding in the prophet as he understood the text until the text becomes an experience and the experience becomes a revelation and that revelation becomes a testimony. And it becomes a testimony in Cornelius, it becomes a testimony in Peter. Because when he comes back and to report to the Jerusalem church, he says, I saw exactly what happened to us at Pentecost happen here. This is the Gentile Pentecost. Exactly what happened to them was happening here. The coming of the Spirit was visible. It was public. Everybody could see what God was doing. So you see again and again that the movement of God, he comes both to the prophet and he moves us, he changes our understanding of how we have read the scriptures. And it is often an experience, an experience that's, that shifts us in our approach. And not only that, you know, it becomes something way beyond what we could have just understood. It is a revelation. For, for Peter, it is to see that nothing is unclean was a revelation. And it is that revelation that prepares him to become this river of living water to this people. So as you look at this, this is the grace of God. When we think of grace, we are often just stopping at the cross. We think of grace as grace that, you know, I don't deserve, and God in his mercy forgives me, washes me clean, and accepts me to eternal life. That's the starting block of grace. See? You're just starting on the race of grace. See? Grace is not just that. Grace is this amazing empowering of God. Every experience of the Holy Spirit is a ministry of grace. See? So that the Holy Spirit comes, every revelation, every new way in which the text shifts me, see, so that I begin to see things in a new way, is a work of grace. It's not my work. It's not my willingness. It's, you know, it's far above that. It's a work of grace. So grace becomes this empowering. Okay? You know, the, the whole link between 
the Greek word charis and charismata, the gifts, uh, this whole way of God's power coming upon us beyond what we can contain, beyond what we can think or imagine. It is abundant. It is infinite. For me, grace is not just amazing grace, sufficient grace, or abundant grace. Grace is always infinite because God is infinite. So the grace that God wants to put in us is not limited by my expectation, my hunger, my need, my vision of what God can do in the kingdom. Grace is only according to his measure. Grace is according to his measure. And that is something we need to recognize. It is Christ in me. Not just I. No, the basic understanding of grace we have is I am in Christ and therefore I am safe. See, Christ in me is infinite grace. It has nothing to do with my hunger. It has nothing to do with my level of need or my level of weakness. Christ in me is because the Holy Spirit has come and made me a temple of the living God. That's why when you, you know, turn with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. You know, this is one of my, Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And Paul says in verse 14, Ephesians 3, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. See, again, he's not talking of individuals, he's talking of all of us. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. For me, glory is the goodness of God accompanied by the power of God. It is never power without goodness. It is never just goodness without power. The two come together. You see? The goodness of God accompanied by the power of God. And he said that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. See? This is what the spirit does. The anointing of the Spirit, the revelation of the Spirit, the coming down of the Spirit, the clothing of the Spirit, whatever we may call it, this is what the Spirit does in our inner being. And he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's not just me in Christ, it's Christ in me. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ. He's saying, you know, what is our foundation? What is our rootedness? Our rootedness is this, the love of Christ. That is our confidence the love of Christ. This is grace. God loves you. God loves me. He loves you today more than he loved you yesterday. If you're having a bad day, remember God's not having a bad day with you. He loves you. It's hard for us to grasp that. That I'm completely 
loved enough for him to dwell within me. And then he goes on to say, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height. And then he says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It is not something I can grasp, I can understand. It is beyond that. It is an experience. It is a revelation that this God would choose to love me so much that in all his fullness he's willing to dwell in me. And he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is why when you drink of the water that Jesus gives, you drink of him, he becomes a river of living water. Not just quenching your thirst. He becomes the river of living water. And therefore, you know, he can close with this benediction. Now to him who by the power at work within us, you see, uh, is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. You see? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to every generation forever and ever. This is beyond what you can think, what you can ask, what you can imagine. Surpasses knowledge, the fullness of God. This is grace. That he will come. He loves you. He loves me. Enough to say, I will dwell in you. I will dwell in you. And that's the amazing, amazing thing. That in this body, he's willing to be present. And so what we do is just allowing him to emerge. So Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, as we look at this whole understanding of God, I want to say he always gives you more than you can drink. Are you with me? Amen. Okay. He's always above and beyond your capacity. It is not like, this is what I can do. This is what God has done with me before. He says, that was just to quench your thirst. I've got a river to flow through you. It is far more than what you want, what you think, what you imagine. He wants to do more. That's the generosity of, it's not your capacity. It's God's. It's according to the riches of his glory, not your capacity, so that you may be filled with what? All the fullness of God. Are you ready? Are you willing to accept? If you want that kind where your heart is hungry and saying, I, I want that drink. I want you to first come to the place where you say, I don't understand how you can love me this much. 
I can't grasp the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth of your love. This is beyond my knowledge. But come with the, the knowledge that he loves you. That is the foundation. See? That is where your roots are. And when your roots are there, you will be like a tree planted by rivers of living water whose leaf doesn't wither, who brings forth fruit in its season because it's the river that flows. Okay. So that's the invitation tonight. So I'm going to ask Pastor Q, Pastor Mimi to come up and Nalini, if you can also come up here. I'm going to invite you. Let's stand. Let's stand, yeah. <coughs> and come not with any preconceived notion of how God should fill you, okay? What did I show? I showed that the prophet has to change in their understanding of the text. It has to shift. So the experience of God is always more than we have understood or experienced him in the past. Okay? So the revelation will be more. So I pray that as you come, God will touch you the way he wants to touch you, not just the way you're asking. Okay? When God touched me, I didn't ask for healing. He healed me instantly. Of all the gifts, the last gift I wanted was evangelism. See, I was a little scared of that. But that's the gift God gave. I didn't ask for it. So tonight as you come, I don't know where. God may touch you and heal you as part of it. I don't know what sickness you need healing from or where you need deliverance from. Or it may be a new capacity, a new boldness, a, a new flooding of God's love for you. Okay. I don't know how, what God is going to do. Each one, it's going to be God saying, I love you, my daughter. I love you, my son. And here, drink of me. And you're going to see a river flowing through you. A river flowing through you. And that is what God is promising. It is beyond your capacity. It's according to the riches of his glory. Say with me, according to the riches of his glory. That's, that's what God promises you. So come, as you come, you know, you're going to take time, pray with each one, and uh, just come to whoever you want to come to, and let us pray. And we will just lay hands, as we lay hands, you know, this is how, there's something that happens. When the apostles laid hands on the Samaritan church, they received the Spirit. When Ananias laid hands on Saul, he received the Spirit. There's something that happens, God does. So as you come, it's not because of us, it's because of what God wants to do. And after you have been prayed for, put out your hands to the person who's praying with you. Let them bless your hands, so that when you go and lay hands, the same thing that happened to you will happen to others. Are you with me? Okay? Receive an anointing and put your hands out so that your hands are anointed to bless others. Come.